Hello and welcome to a new episode of Film Seizure at the Movies. I'm Jeff Harbuckle, co-host of the Film Seizure podcast that you can catch each Wednesday morning with my cohorts Jason Oliver and Chuck Moore and my solo show Monster Mondays. You can catch that each Monday afternoon. Um, you can catch both of those shows at filmseizure.com. So welcome to this gigantic September catch-up of some movies that I caught throughout the month. Uh, I've got a total of seven movies to comment about this month and uh, give some kind of non-spoilery thoughts. So let's not waste any time and we'll dive right in. I always thought you could have made a cool movie. You're right. I'm living on borrowed time. No more watching movies. I'm gonna make a movie! In 1994, Kevin Smith had a smash indie hit with Clerks. As someone who was young, kind of a typical disaffected Gen Xer who worked in retail, it was an immediate hit for me. Plus, it made it was made with this kind of homemade DIY movie made in black and white with non-professional actors and pop reference heavy dialogue style. It was an incredible inspiration for someone who might have wanted to try to get into filmmaking too. But now, 28 years later, Clerks 3 has been released. And it hits differently in this third film and supposedly final film in the saga that began with Clerks and continued in several films afterwards. Randall and Dante are back at the Quick Stop convenience store. And after Randall has a life-threatening heart attack, he decides it's time he finally needs to do something with his life and opts to make a movie that captured his and Dante's life as these clerks. Meanwhile, Dante himself is dealing with a tragedy that has been holding him back as well and kind of generally affecting the pair being able to complete their attempt to make this movie. And here's the thing with Clerks 3. Unlike Jay and Silent Bob Reboot, which also dealt with uh, one of these characters having to come to terms with growing older, having responsibilities and so forth. Clerks 3 largely works. Is it a perfect movie? No, it's not. There are some elements that wear out its welcome here and there, but on a whole, I really enjoyed watching this movie. More than anything, it was the enjoyment of seeing these characters and being older like they were. Jay and Silent Bob reboot was a slog and almost beating you over the head with its intention but clerks 3 has a warm blanket feel to it it looks back with fondness and sentimentality to that very first clerks film and how raw and youthful it felt and as a fan i've been on this journey going from an 18 year old when i first saw the film in summer of 1995 to now being a 45 year old with different attitudes different goals yet still a guy trying to hold on to some of that youthful vigor and sardonic attitude uh, it's a lovely full circle it might be you know one time that you can say kevin smith really understood what made his career interesting at the start he replicates this independent vibe vibe and lets his characters live as if it is still 1995 or 1994 rather or 1994 all over again um and when it comes to seeing all the old actors getting together again minus lisa spoonhour who sadly passed away in 2017 it just felt right even when it wasn't always working it still just felt right it took me back nearly 30 years to that original 
couple that with a beautifully heartfelt final act that was surprising but fitting with a wonderful and direct line from Brian O'Halloran's Dante to punctuate the final moments of the journey we all went on with Smith, O'Halloran, Jeff Anderson, Jason Mewes, and everyone else in this cast. Uh, but if you're a fan of Clerks and Kevin Smith's work in general, this will be one you will not want to pass up, even if you've not really enjoyed the more recent work. So I definitely recommend this one for those fans uh, of Kevin Smith and his career. Um, if you didn't get a chance to see it in theaters, um, you should be able to get it pretty relatively soon on digital or on DVD, I would suspect. That's how we did it in the 90s, son! Now, caring for your family during these times is admirable. But you only get one take at this life. If only they would just die. Pardon? Nothing. Next up, we have the somewhat surprising sequel to X, one of the finer horror films made in the recent years, and that is Ty West's Pearl, which happens to be an even finer sort of horror film uh more on that here in just a moment but pearl is the backstory of the elderly woman that was one of two roles played by mia goth in the original x at the end of that film we were treated to the surprise reveal that there had been a movie going into pearl's life as a younger woman being filmed just after ty west directed and finished x and only about six months later Pearl is here. And I think it's safe to say that some might be surprised to discover that Pearl is not your traditional horror film. Whereas X was certainly living up to the 70s brand of exploitation horror in the way it was shot and the characters at play, Pearl opts instead to tell this classic Hollywood Technicolor dreamlike fantasy movie for much of it. Instead of going for brutality and scares, we're treated to a deeper and much richer character study of Mia Goth's character. And Goth co-wrote this film with West, and it's uh, very well crafted uh, about a you know the story about a woman in 1918 who is kind of trapped in several different situations. First, she's married to a man off fighting in World War One. She doesn't really feel as though she has the freedom to use her youth and looks to find love at a very important time in her life. She's also trapped on this farm, the same farm that we saw in X, but she's under the roof of a tyrannical German mother and invalid father. She's also trapped in her daydreams of one day hoping to become a dancer in the films that she sneaks off to see while she's in the nearest town. All three of those situations she's trapped in interconnect. She's married uh, she married her husband because she thought he'd take her away from the farm, even though he came specifically to the farm to work the farm and actually become a farmer and not really leave it. She's doing the chores th thrust upon her by her mother because she still loves her father, even though she isn't even sure that he still exists in his broken body and mind. So she so desperately wants to be a famous movie star. She can't see that it's very likely she really doesn't have any understanding or awareness that she probably doesn't have the talent. But lying underneath is a terrible secret that is only ever hinted at through the film. She's a cruel psychopath. And that comes out to play uh, in the second half of the movie 
for sure. It's really only kind of ever hinted at throughout the first half of the film. But she kills a goose for almost no reason other than to feed a lingering crocodile near the farm. She cannot handle rejection. She cannot handle anyone even hinting at the possibility of being frightened by her. When she's curious about things, her instincts tend to go almost murderous, as we see in scenes with her father and with an egg from that crocodile that she snatched from its nest. It's a subtle movie about mental illness and psychosis that becomes incredibly dark and vicious. Uh, but what's most important about this movie is that Pearl features one of the most engaging and edge of your seat and hanging on every word scene that I've seen in a long, long, long time. There is this long take of Mia Goth talking to a friend about things that she's no longer really able to hide about herself. And it goes on and on and on. And it's scary stuff. No, it's not outright the character telling us that she's going to kill someone or describing exactly the things that she's done. It's not that at all. She's giving a confession and it's excruciating seeing this person say all these things and not fully understanding what's wrong with her or if there's any positive solution that she can have to carry on with life. It's the type of scene that gets someone nominated for an Oscar. And I actually really hope Mia Goth does get nominated for her performance alone. Pearl elevates itself over its predecessor. But then when you get into the style of this movie uh, being this kind of technicolor dream world, that's actually just a nightmare in bright colors. And this is a really special movie. Kudos to Ty West and Mia Goth for a fantastic film. And if you were a fan of X, you'll like this a lot. I certainly did, and it's most definitely has the highest recommendation for any of the movies I'm covering on this episode. I'm worried there may be something real wrong with me. You're aware of a deeper existence. Are you there, Are you there, Are you there Maybe a temporary reassurance that indeed there is no beginning, no end. David Bowie is, without a doubt, one of the most unique rock and roll performers of the past 50 years. When he passed away in January 2016, just two days after his 69th birthday, the world went into some pretty deep mourning. For the last four years, filmmaker Brett Morgan, who had already done documentaries about the Rolling Stones, Kurt Cobain, an, adapt an adaptation of Robert Evans' autobiography, The Kid Stays in the Picture, and one of ESPN's most noteworthy 30 for 30 documentaries about the insane sports day that occurred alongside the police chase of O.J. Simpson. Um, this guy just knows how to make a documentary. And in the trailer for Moon Age Daydream, his documentary about David Bowie, Morgan shows how he plans to present the information we are going to see. It's a mix of recordings, concert footage, TV interviews, and some more private moments in the rocker's life kind of brought together in what a lot of people would rightfully uh, compared to a kaleidoscope. The way this info is presented is definitely the strength of this film. It's only available to be seen on IMAX screens. Um, it uses editing tricks and some transitional tricks uh, to create a much more surreal experience while also playing with sound 
by moving some of the words and music around you with the speakers. It definitely plays to the interest Bowie had in video editing and his music. Sound and Vision isn't just the name of a 1977 David Bowie song. It seemed to be a passion of the performer, and Brett Morgan does a great job playing with that in this format. Also, I do really appreciate the the title, Moon Age Daydream, really kind of plays up to David Bowie's mindset as he was a performer who almost kind of performed music and performed on stage in this kind of very um, grandiose way that it transports you as you watch this into that kind of daydream and that space age daydream that Bowie kind of physically represented. However, to me, Moon Age Daydream is really only a, a positive in the exercise of editing a format. The content actually falls pretty flat for me. The three major issues I have with the film are that the film is way too long, coming in at 140 minutes. And what makes it especially difficult for the runtime is the fact that it mostly borrows from a lot of footage that isn't exactly hard to see thanks to platforms like YouTube. I knew I was in a little bit of trouble when I recognized a lot of the stage footage, and I'm not nearly the huge Bowie fan as some of the others I saw at my screening. Sure, I like Bowie's music a lot, but even I had seen some of the footage already. So that really leaves the third big issue I had, and I didn't feel like I got any additional information about this rock god that I hadn't already known. It's only briefly mentioned that he didn't have a great relationship with his mother, but it's mentioned and the movie just kind of keeps moving. It's talked about how he keeps love at arm's length, at least until he met his now widowed Iman. Uh, but he had a son who is a filmmaker, Duncan Jones, and he did have a very peculiar relationship of convenience with that first wife who Duncan Jones is the is the offspring of. And neither are mentioned or discussed at all. I can hear his music. I can see his performance, but I don't know anything about the man. Now, granted, there is effort to show how he wasn't always sure which character he was, um, you know, from one day to the next during the 70s. So it's clear he only showed the world what he wanted to show. But in comparison to last year's marvelous film about Tom Petty, Somewhere You Feel Free, that was such a triumph for me because... It was about my favorite artist recording my favorite album, and I saw things I never saw before and learned things about Petty uh, that I never knew for sure. Um, so Moon Age Daydream, sadly, is not much more for me than a concert film and not quite the triumph I wanted. With that, I can only mildly recommend it, and I would only do that for serious Bowie fans. And even then, I'm not sure I would say it's worth the price of IMAX admission. There might be something there for editors um, to, and you know, uh, people who are more interested in the video and audio side of it to to look at and study, but. If you're only kind of a passing fan of Bowie, I'm not entirely sure you would really get much more out of this other than it has a pretty good soundtrack. Ever since I was 16, I was determined to have the greatest adventure that any one person could ever have. Victim's name is Leo Kopernik, sir. Seems he was killed in the costume store and then he was deposited here. Staged, so to speak. 
In London's West End, an extremely successful play based on Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap is celebrating a killer 100th show on stage, and that's the setup of Tom George's new mystery comedy, See How They Run, starring Sam Rockwell, uh, Sorsha Ronan, Adrian Bodie, and Harris Dickinson. Uh, when I was uh, first was watching this, I thought for sure it had to be based on some older movie or a play or something, but I was surprised by... Uh, a bit surprised by the influences writer Mark Chappell took from uh, in order to craft this fun little romp. The Mousetrap was indeed a play, or is indeed a play, I should say, that ran continuously in London from October 1952 until COVID lockdowns began. No kidding. It reached the 27,500th performance on September 18, 2018. Uh, four years and one day after I went and saw the movie, as it turned out. It eventually reopened in 2021 and still runs. But in this fictionalized tale that includes some actual real-life notable people like actor and filmmaker Richard Attenborough, played by Dickinson, uh, producer John Wolfe, played by uh, Reese Shearsmith, Agatha Christie, played by Shirley Henderson, Sheila Sim, played by Pearl Shonda, uh, and a few... Uh, other people of note, we find ourselves embroiled in a mystery within a mystery. When director Leo Kupernick, uh, Adrian Brody, is killed uh, in the dressing room and put on display on stage, it's up to Sam Rockwell's Inspector Stoppard and Shorsey uh, Ronan's Constable Stalker to try to put the pieces together in a very meta, at least to the world of the movie, way that's similar to an Agatha Christie story. And I'm not going to go too much further into any detail to avoid giving away spoilers, but I will say that this is just a very pleasantly funny and lightweight to spend about a hundred minutes of your life. Sam Rockwell is always fun to watch, especially when he's kind of a bumbling doof and he kind of misleadingly plays aloof in this movie. Um, so he's kind of right up his, his alley here. His inspector is mostly seen as kind of out of his depth and not the guy Scotland Yard would have preferred to send to investigate this particular high-profile murder yet he's actually better at his job than you might think um, there are a lot lots of lovely little british puns and jokes and physical pratfalls and what have you in this but for my money this movie absolutely belongs to sorche ronan she's so over eager and so wonderfully pleasant and so normal because of uh, all that in this kind of wildly unreal world that sees this murder play out like a book or a movie finds her reacting like we would if we had to go in and start asking famous actors questions about anything, let alone a crime. She's perfectly cast and plays this so well and kind of old timey in a way. She has several puns and one liners that so easily slip out of her during this movie that honestly gave me some of the bigger chuckles I had in the movie. And she plays off Sam Rockwell quite well, too. If there's one thing that I would say is that this movie is so old-fashioned and so British in some of its setups and jokes that I'm not sure that this is really for everyone. However, as I said and as I will keep saying, this is just a pleasant romp of a movie, and I enjoyed it. And if you like Agatha Christie-style mysteries and might like to see a mild parody of one, I would definitely recommend See How They Run. He killed Kopernick to hush up the affair. Case closed. I'm doing it again, aren't I, sir? Jumping to conclusions. Okay. Yeah. A little bit. 
Welcome to the Victory Project. We're all here because we believe in the mission. What are we doing? Changing the world. What are we doing? Changing the world. All right, so let's now talk about the newest release of the films featured on this episode. Director Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry Darling. Now, for weeks now, the drama surrounding the potentially pretty rough production and post-production has been pretty well scrutinized. Um, But could this be a sort of art from adversity situation? Well, let's see. Don't Worry Darling finds Alice, played by the always enjoyable Florence Pugh, and Jack, played by pop star Harry Styles, living in the idyllic 50s town of Victory, where the women keeps the house and the men work at a top secret facility out in the middle of the desert. However, Alice starts seeing some things that haunt and trouble her. The steel grip that the head of the Victory Project, Frank, played by Chris Pine, is potentially slipping. But what is the Victory Project? What is the deal with the eggs that crack open and don't release any of their normal inside stuff? Why did the girl next door slit her own throat and throw herself from the roof? What could Jack have to do with anything that's going on, or is he kind of an innocent too? I don't want to completely and totally trash this movie. Uh, There are some good things here, but unfortunately the movie is just a handful of good things that are poorly stitched together that ultimately all comes undone in the final act and a mishmash of good ideas gone sour by reveals that kind of come out of left field and a sort of hilarious car chase that makes you scratch your head a little bit. It's funny because almost the entire focus of this movie is squarely on Florence Pugh, and she is phenomenal in a fairly bad movie. Pugh continues to be the most exciting young actress in movies today. She has to carry the burden of a kept woman in that idyllic 50s lifestyle that a certain subset of people in the real world think we'd all be better off trying to achieve, but we can also see that she's smart. There's a spark in her eye. There's a larger understanding of some of the other characters uh, or that some of the other characters don't possess. She does this in a very subtle way. There are times in which another character says something to her that she reacts to with a laugh. But the laugh sounds fake because it kind of has to be. It's a good performance. Uh, Chris Pine is kind of perfect as this charismatic near cult leader who says a lot without saying anything of substance. Um, And he immediately made me think of a particular famous uh, psychiatrist or psychologist or whatever he is. Makes me think a lot of that once you kind of see the movie play out. But it's a good opposite to Pew. You know, he's constantly talking about how order and how, you know, everything needs to be neat and tidy and everything needs to be put together in the right way for these people to live the best lives possible. So it's a really good performance. Again, two really great performances in a relatively not so great movie. On the other hand, Harry Styles isn't particularly great. Um, I think he might have a shot to do something so much better, but I never really bought him as this rising king of industry. He's just this baby faced Brit who has this wildly explicit love affair, but that's a about as much energy as he could bring to this movie and there's a twist to this movie that is frankly confusing 
There's an element to it that I really do like, but the presentation just doesn't work. It reminds me of some of the utter and complete frustration I had with the M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village. It really bothered me how this twist played out. There were also some connective tissue issues that I felt this movie had as well. There are major pacing issues where sometimes the movie takes its time to reveal itself and then it seems to jump two or three spaces ahead to thrust the narrative into uh, confrontations that didn't feel earned. I suspect somewhere, somewhere out there, there's a two and a half hour version of this movie that could quite possibly be better. It might solve some of those pacing issues and might really solve the twist reveal to make it a little less stark and frustrating for me. So, as much as I really like Florence Pugh and Chris Pine in this, I have to give Don't Worry Darling a big old pass. All of you wives. We men, we ask a lot. We ask for strength, food at home, a house clean, and discretion above all else. Margo and I are so excited to have you guys for our little housewarming party. Hashtag Adam and Margo's crib. Cheers! And now, I also checked out a couple of movies currently streaming on Shudder. One that I watched uh, was the dinner party film Who Invited Them? This was about a couple hosting a housewarming party. The husband is trying to kind of chase some clout by showing off his new Beverly Hills home uh, to co-workers and his boss and so forth, while the wife is a little crunchier and prefers not to have uh, that kind of attitude towards life and, uh, you know, and have those kind of shallow relationships with people. After everyone leaves the party, the couple is uh, a couple is revealed to have not left with everyone else. This couple is quickly able to ingratiate themselves with their hosts but as the, um, you know, as the night kind of goes on, the couple start to almost influence the host to do things they don't normally do or bring some scars to the surface within the relationship before things start to get a lot more sinister and the truth is revealed. For me, I didn't really like this movie. Uh, the first two acts are infuriating that someone just cannot seem to get control of unwanted guests to get them to leave. But on top of that, those issues brought to the surface in the host's lives uh, really seem to prove that they are a pretty mismatched couple. There's nothing terribly likable about any of these characters, but I will say that the third act definitely takes off. Uh, but to get to that point, it's a little bit of a frustrating experience. So to me, uh, pass on who invited them. Hold on. Who invited you? We weren't actually invited in the formal sense. Or the informal sense. What? Can we hit the reset button? Are you guys digging for treasure? Something like that. Lastly, I also watched a much better film on Shudder, the Dutch-English film Moloch. Uh, this is a super atmospheric folk horror film. It concerns a festival that takes place uh, based on an old local legend about a witch that took over the body of a noblewoman. About every 30 years or so, this ceremony happens. However, there's something more to this than you might suspect, and it might not just be a local legend that they're celebrating, but an actual spirit 
that needs to be appeased. Moloch is directed and co-written by Nico Vandenbrink, and uh, it is right up there with movies like The Wicker Man, where a town is hiding something terrible and outsiders are slowly starting to figure it out. It doesn't rely on the film's supernatural premise to the point that you are actually seeing scary spooks and demons and stuff. It's a slow burn that makes you feel this terrible secret um, and reveal itself scene after scene until it does get to a pretty terrifying conclusion. Uh, but it's important to realize that this is, like I said, definitely a slow burn. This is not for the folks who want those ghosts and demons and monsters to jump out at them and build back up to another jump scare and, and on and on and on. This is a horror movie completely dependent on its atmosphere and letting its mystery build to that conclusion. That said, I highly recommend Moloch to fans of folk horror and slow burn scares. This will certainly play well in October if you want a chiller to watch as Halloween closes in. What's going on? Family curse. That does it for this episode, so don't forget to follow Film Seizure at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so you can be made aware of new episodes of our various shows as they drop. You can also follow us at podcast providers like SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible. You can also learn, listen to the show on YouTube by subscribing there. The next time I do some reviews, I will likely be talking about the third part of the current Halloween trilogy that promises to have a showdown between Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Myers in Halloween Ends. So until then, don't forget to save me the aisle seat. <laughs>